0: And if you'll turn to your Bibles to Romans 2, Romans chapter 2, let me mention some things that are coming up quickly. One, this hour starts at 11.15 and it will revert back to 11.15 next week. We've had two weeks in a row where we have uh, started later than that, but that was a, an exception. We will get back to 11.15 next week, okay? And also, here are some things that are coming up. This weekend, Friday through Sunday, is the Trenton Summer Festival. We have, the last couple of years, had a table there, a booth, where we hand out information about the church. And what we need are folks who can take a two-hour slot, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, to do that. And if you're interested in looking at uh, one of those slots then today we need to know about that. So stop at the information desk before you leave today, the information desk in the lobby. That's this weekend. And then on Monday, a week from tomorrow, there is a friends group. The friends group is the 60 and older group uh, for our church. It's called the friends group. And they're having a get-together at 7 o'clock a week from Monday, the 30th here. And that's going to be in the Resource Center. Uh, That's our small version of a bookstore, Resource Center for our folks. And it's uh, being called a, a coffee house night. And uh, there is going to be uh, easy listening and a variety of music from Paul McKenzie. Paul's going to be playing. And if you haven't heard Paul play, then you're in for a treat because he is a, a very accomplished musician. And I'm sure you'll enjoy that very much. So if you're in the friends group, they have that event one week from Monday, seven o'clock here. However, they got to make sure they have enough people to uh, to put it on. It is the summertime; people are gone and all of that. And so sometimes events in the summertime aren't as well attended. They got to know today how many of you are planning to attend. So if you're in the friends group and you want to be a part of that, then you need to let the, the folks at the information desk know before you leave today. And then a few other things: July fifth. That's uh, one week from this Saturday, two weeks from yesterday. July 5th at 10 a.m. as many able-bodied folks as can we're asking to meet here so that we can take a couple of hours to canvas this neighborhood with door hangers with information about the following Saturday's open house that we're going to have here. This is our first opportunity really for us to introduce ourselves to the community but we want to let them know that we're having this event on July the 12th and so on July 5th the, the week prior uh, we're going to be handing out those uh, those door hangers. So if you can help with that, mark that Saturday the 5th for for canvassing. And then the 12th from 1 to 5 is an open house here. We're going to give tours of our building. Uh, we're going to have some bounce houses out on the grounds and uh, hot dogs. Uh, it's not going to be a blowout kind of festival, but it's uh, going to be something uh, with which we're trying to welcome the community <clears throat> and uh, invite them to see what has been done with this building that is cherished by a number of people in the neighborhood. It used to be uh, Taylor Elementary School. Many people in this neighborhood attended here when they were kids. Some of them taught here, and they're very anxious to see what's been done in the building, and we're hoping out of that that might give us some contacts for folks to, uh, uh, for the gospel uh, uh, as a result of our outreach to them. And then longer range is our Vacation Bible School, August 10 through 14. That's a Sunday night through Thursday night. The VBS, like last year, will be in the evenings, and all of the volunteers have already uh, uh, made themselves known, so we have that covered. But uh, supplies, we are collecting between now and then, and we have a list of the supplies that are needed for that out on a table, and that that has a display for that very purpose. So if you haven't seen that yet, please do, and uh, take one of the slips of paper or more that tell you some of the items to purchase and bring in. We have a new series in our first hour next week, our 9.30 worship hour, and that will be a Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. That will start next Sunday at 9.30. And in this hour, July 20th, we will start a new series called Where is God When It Hurts? And it's a biblical view of pain and, and suffering. We've been involved in this class for the last few weeks looking at personal evangelism, how we... Each individually can be used of God in the lives of others to see them come to Christ. Personal evangelism. And we have made the the point that we should treat each person as a person. Rather than using a a canned presentation that we use on each person as a sort of one-size-fits-all, in which one of the dangers is that you come off as a salesperson trying to close the deal. Rather than doing that, that we treat each person as an individual, not just a scalp to add to our uh, array of scalps that we have uh, given the gospel to and had pray the prayer. And I say it that way because if we're not careful, oftentimes it comes off that way. When we give the gospel to people, and especially if we have learned a rote approach to dispensing the gospel, uh, we can try to shoehorn the individual into the track that we want them to go, and people sense that and they feel that. And more important, it's not the tact that you see Jesus taking in the gospels. When Jesus talked to folks, he, uh, he, he approached them in a way that was personalized, in a way that spoke to where they were. Now, all of them were in sin in one form or another, but he spoke to the particular form of sin that, uh, that was emphasized in, in their lives. He had irreligious people and he had religious people, and both of them had characteristic types of sin that Jesus addressed. And so he approached, as we saw several weeks ago, the woman at the well in John 4, uh, quite different than he did the rich young ruler. In, uh, in in Luke 18. And so we should follow Jesus' lead in personalizing the way that we give the gospel, and that means emphasizing the kind of personal sin that this individual has emphasized in his or her life. Now, when I say personal sin, uh, I mean that in, in this sense. It's not only individualized not No two individuals are alike, and so we need to take that into account. But also, people sin as persons, and persons, as we've seen the last few weeks, have three faculties. They have the faculty of of intellect and of volition and of, of emotion. People can think, they can act, and they can feel. And as you encounter unsaved folks pre-Christian folks. I like that. It's an optimistic way of saying it, pre-Christian. We're assuming you're going to become a Christian. It's just a matter of time and us uh, talking long enough. Uh, as you encounter a pre-Christian person, uh, they are going to have characteristic ways that they uh, manifest their, their sin. And often that will be through their, their thinking, through their doing, uh, or their feeling. Now, of course, all people, all persons are all three of those, and so it's not as though people only sin with their mind or only sin with the things that they do or, or that they feel, but that persons are different, and they tend to manifest their sin primarily in one of those, those ways. Now, we're going to see in a moment then the effects that that has on personal evangelism. But a few weeks ago, as we were starting down that road, I decided to do an excursus. And at the time, I told you uh, I just like to say the word excursus, and here I've now said it again, and I feel much better. But it means you're kind of going off the, the trail for an excursion. And the excursus was this. It was to not just focus upon the characteristic ways that sin manifests itself in the life of someone that we're trying to evangelize, give the gospel to, But to take a few weeks for us each to think about the ways that we characteristically sin. Because we carry the same kinds of baggage that we had in the old life with the old nature into the new life. And those are going to tend to be the same kinds of characteristic struggles that we have after we come to to Christ. Now Christ has given us power over sin. And Christ desires that we achieve victory over those sins. But those are going to be the particular ways you struggle and I struggle that are probably different from one another, and those come from our nature, just what we're like naturally, we're different, and they come from our nurture, the things we had modeled before us. And So last week, I suggested that you do an analysis of that baggage for yourself, that each of us do that. And think about the characteristic ways you sin just because of the kind of person you are naturally, your personality. And then think about the struggles that you have because of what it was you observed in the home you grew up in, that you had modeled before you. And if you put those two things together, you're going to see a quick snapshot of your life and your struggles. And if you're honest, you'll admit that you continue to struggle with many of those, those things. And I suggested last week that you do two things with that then. Having analyzed it, go long and go deep. If you were here last week, you may remember that. Go long meant go into, go into your past and, and think about how this particular habit and this particular struggle uh, developed. And one way to do that is for you to put a timeline of your life together. Uh, I do this in, in counseling with folks, and it's often, it's often uh, quite helpful Uh, he wouldn't mind me saying this but last week uh, James Sternberg gave a testimony as it was their last Sunday James and Sharon's uh, last Sunday with us and they talked about uh, how uh, that I and Rich Carrico had opportunity to meet over a number of weeks with James and uh, out of that he was he was benefited Uh, but one of the reasons he was is because we did this timeline thing and he went back and he looked at how some of the struggles that he's had for a lot of years developed and then we, uh, we analyze those. So go long means doing that. Going deep means looking at the struggle now and asking some, some questions. What is going on? That is, what is the situation? And how do I respond to what is going on? And uh, what do I think about what is going on? And what do I want from what is going on? So what's going on in my life? The, the things that normally get me in trouble that are my characteristic sins, when those happen, what are the, what's the situation or what are the kinds of situations and then what is my response in those situations, what am I thinking and then most importantly, getting to the bottom of it, what do I desire, what do I want because our desires lead to our thoughts, which lead to our words and deeds, our responses, uh, which then exacerbate the situations that we find ourselves in. Now, if you weren't here last week, we have all of our stuff recorded on our website, so you can go back and listen to that if you are interested. Today I want then to return to, we're back off the excursus now, and back to personal evangelism. And as I said earlier, uh, I'm making the case that people that you will encounter as individuals and as persons manifest their opposition to the gospel, their characteristic sin, in different ways. Many of them, it will be emphasized in their thinking, others in their, in their doing, and others in their, in their feeling. And back before we had the excursus, we looked at the first of those, intellectual sin. Not thinking about God in, in uh, truthful ways. Thinking about God in sinful ways. By dismissing God, by uh, ignoring God, we looked at Romans chapter 1 and the fact that all people were made by God to know God. And in their sin, they suppress the truth, Romans 1.18, that they know about God. And Romans 1.20, therefore, they are without a defense. They are without an excuse before God. But there is volitional and there is emotional manifestation of sin as well. So the person that you're trying to witness to, give the gospel to at work or in your family or in your neighborhood, may not be the intellectual type. This may not be the person who marshals philosophical uh, arguments against Christianity. That would be Romans 1 and Acts 17. But your more garden variety sinful person is the person who does things that are contrary to God's law and feels things. As well, emotionally, that are, that, are, uh, that are dismissive of God's law, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. So I've asked you to turn to Romans 2. And the reason I ask you to turn to Romans 2 is because Romans 2 says something about volitional sin, S- sins indeed, sins in, in what we do. In verse 14 it says, When Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Now what's being said there is that, Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, to whom was not given the, the law of Moses. The Jews are the custodians of the law, and it's to them that, that the law was given, but not to Gentiles. But nevertheless, Paul, who wrote this, is making the case that all people are sinful, Jew or Gentile, because in the case of Jews who have the law, they have violated the law that they've been given. And in the case of Gentiles, by their very nature, they have a sense of right and wrong. And because of that sense of right and wrong given to them by God, when they violate that, they are showing them themselves to have a law, the law written on their hearts. and They are guilty of, of breaking it. So this is volitional sin. This is things people do. That are, contrary to, that are contrary to God's law, that people choose to do. In a nutshell, Romans 2, 14 and 15 is saying that God has given all people a general sense of right and wrong. Now, how does that translate into you and, and your personal witness? Well, here's how. Every person has been given a sense of what ought to be. That word ought is really important. It ought to be this way. Every person has been given a sense of that by God. How many times have you said or have you heard somebody say there ought to be what? There ought to be a law, right? And non-Christian people will say things like that. And they will say it ought to be a particular way. And they will manifest that they understand that and, and know that. And that their particular personality focuses on issues of choice and volition by some of the things they say. For example, if you're at work and you're talking to somebody about you know, a mass shooting that occurred somewhere in the, in the country. Without exception, people in your office are going to express a disapproval of that. They're going to say things like, they ought to put that guy in jail. They ought to, notice, put that guy in jail and throw away the key. Or, if they're more crude, they ought to sit him down in old Sparky. Okay? I mean, they just, but they've got their punishment all set up for this person. The question is, why? Why should it be that way? Why ought that person to be thrown in jail and the key be thrown away or they be saddled in an electric chair or something like that? And what you need to do, what we need to do in personal evangelism is be be keen to making that that point with our non-Christian friend. As the person expresses disapproval for the behavior, the choices of somebody else, say, hey, let me ask you something. How do you know it's not supposed to be that way? What do you mean? Supposed to be that way. Are people supposed to be able to go in and just shoot whoever they want? Well, no. You know, Don't misunderstand. Nobody should be able to do that, and it should not be that way. But my question to you is, how do you know that it shouldn't be that way? By what law do you know that people should not behave that way? And most garden variety uh, unsaved people haven't thought about it. They haven't thought about it because they have by nature the sense of right and wrong. They react to what they see as, as wrong. They pronounce judgment upon that. And then what you want to do is, as a friend and as gently as you can show, they have no, hear this, they have no basis for their objection. And their answer will usually be some variation of because. Well, how do you know it's not supposed to be that way? Well, because. Any idiot knows it's not supposed to be that way. Well doesn't now hear this, doesn't that presuppose a way it's supposed to be? There's a way it ought to be. And my friend, my co worker, where does that way come from? Who designed that way? Who was the one that gave you and me and all of us a sense of how it ought to be? Have you ever thought about that? And the answer generally is no. I haven't thought about it. Well, let me tell you about the one who gave that to us, that sense to you, that righteous indignation to you that these things are wrong, that when a child is abused, that is wrong. That when someone in a vulnerable position, whether a wife or a child or a a laborer or whoever it is, is, is taken advantage of, that this is wrong. And we are rightly indignant about that. So I agree with you. My question to you is, how do you know it's wrong? On what basis is that wrong? And the Bible says that all people have that sense. But sinful people do not credit God with the source of that sense. And so they live, as sometimes you've heard me say, they live with the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. And when you do that, when you try to show someone, you have no basis for your indignation. For saying that this is right and this is wrong, or this is the way it's supposed to be, or this is the way it ought to be. When you show that to to an individual, this is what you're doing. You're engaging in what apologists, Christian apologists, call the transcendental argument for Christianity. The transcendental argument. It's actually one of my favorite arguments for Christianity. And here's what it means. You're showing the individual the impossibility of the contrary. That it's really impossible for you to live without the biblical worldview. That's what you're showing. Now, how does that normally go? I've, I've had occasion to do this numerous times over the years. As I said in the first hour, I used to work an honest job for a living until I got this gig as a, as a pastor. And in that job for 20 years, I would meet people and talk to them and seek to do the very thing I'm talking to you about. And I would get into long sometimes discussions and sometimes days and weeks long discussions. And sometimes people would get mad at me. Uh, but that's okay. It opened up opportunity for me to make uh, folks think. There were times when... My dear wife was waiting for me for dinner after work. And my conversation at the end of the day would spill out into the parking lot. The next thing I know, I've been talking to this person for an hour and a half. And my wife is sitting at a restaurant in the days before cell phones, uh, uh, hating on me. And when I arrived, I got a beating that you would not believe. And if you have, if you have ever met my wife, you know this is true. You know that she could, she could take me out if she wanted to. But I would get into those discussions. Sometimes they would be long, sometimes they would be heated. And then sometimes, in God's good gra- grace, His Spirit would move on the heart of a person. They would see the error of the worldview they've been pursuing and draw them to Himself. He wouldn't mind me saying this. He's not here today. But one such person is a member of our church, Gary Hinsman. And Gary and I used to work together. And uh, I had worked at this particular place for a couple of years. Left and then came back. So I knew a number of the people at this particular uh, company. But in the meantime, Gary had been hired. And so I hadn't met him and he hadn't met me. And so it turns out, I found out later, he was asking people in the office, who's this new guy? And they would say, that's Ken. He worked here a few years ago. He's uh, attending a seminary. He's going to be a pastor. Uh, He's a fundamentalist. And uh, Gary said, a fundamentalist? Gary's telling me this afterwards. Uh, well, we can't have that. And so he made it his mission to come and argue with me. And he would come over to my office, and he would sit down, and he, I remember the first time he came, he says, I hear you're a fundamentalist. And I go, yeah, yeah, in the flesh. <laughs> Here I am. So you believe God created the world in six 24-hour days? Yep, check. Uh, you believe Noah had an ark with all the animals on it? Yep, Jack. You believe the Bible has no errors in it? Yep, Jack. And we go to Isaiah, and he's like, he's just incredulous. He's heard about people like this, but he's never actually met one in the flesh. Here he is. How do you even have a job? How are you even able to fill out the application? Let alone get a degree in college if you're an idiot and you believe that kind of stuff? I mean, this was where Gary was, and Gary grew up in. Uh, a extremely liberal denomination. A denomination that did not believe that the Bible is without error. And so he had heard fundamentalists decried for all of those years, and now he's actually met one, and this is amazing to him. And over months, he would come to my office, and he would ask questions, and we would we would talk about it. And the conversation began to calm down a little bit. and We could talk in a more genteel fashion. And uh, I enjoyed our chats. But I left that company not knowing what effect that might have. Years later, I'm working at yet another company. By the way, why did I work at so many companies? I was a consultant. I went from place to place. And I'm working at a place in Ann Arbor. And one day, in walks, guess who, years later, Gary Hinsman. And Gary is carrying an NIV study bottle. And he says... You know, I got saved out of all that. (laughs) And we just, now we talked every day, but in a different way. About what he was reading in the Bible and what he was learning. Now, that's, that's the exception. But I'll take one of those for every 10 or 20 or 100 encounters. Thanks be to God. And it's the same thing that happened to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. When he spoke to the philosophers at Mars Hill... And the Bible tells us at the end of that encounter that some said, we want to hear more about this. Others scoffed, and some believed. And you'll always have those three categories of people, people who will scoff and ridicule. You'll have the people who say, I want to hear more. And you'll have the people who, by God's grace, come to believe. So you're trying to show them that they have no basis, and that's what I was doing over time then with Gary. Well, if you, if you reject the Bible then what is your basis for right and wrong? And that was something that he hadn't encountered, the transcendental argument, the the impossibility of the contrary. Now, that's volitional. And then there is emotional. And again, I'm suggesting that you use the transcendental argument for the way people feel. And if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 7 speaks of sorrow. But it speaks of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Two kinds of sorrow. Verse 8. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8. If I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Now, just stop there. Here's the the Apostle Paul writing this, and he's saying, if you were sorrowful because of what I wrote to you, too bad. So all of you who are into Christianity is all about being nice, you've got to plug Paul into this somehow. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So here is how these people were feeling. They were hurt, sorrowful, because they had been confronted by Paul, by letter. And he says that sorrow was actually a good thing because it led you to repentance. But he says there is worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow does not lead to repentance. Worldly sorrow, then, is similar to the person who is who is indignant about something that someone did, but they have no basis for why someone shouldn't be able to do that. And now likewise with people's feelings. They might be outraged. They might be angry. They might feel guilt. All kinds of emotions that people feel. And these are all emotions that God has given us, To react to things that are improper in the case of anger or outrage or, or guilt. These are all things that God has given us. But again, the individual who has rejected God doesn't have a basis for that outrage and that anger and that guilt. It's worldly anger. It's worldly outrage. It's worldly guilt. That does not lead to repentance. So, how many times have you been at work? And the person not only comments about, you know, what should happen to the individual who committed this, this mass murder, but, I mean, they are just, they are just outraged, angry. And they go on about it. And if I got a hold of that person, right? So, here's a person expressing emotions, emotions that God has given, but no basis for those emotions. And you want to ask... Hey, why are you why are you so angry? On what basis are you so outraged at this? Or have you friend ever felt guilty? Well, yeah, we all feel. If I do something wrong, I feel what? I feel guilty. And what you want to do is not only show them they don't have a basis for their anger and outrage at what others do, they really don't have a basis. Now hear this, they don't have a basis for the guilt that they feel at what they do. You feel guilty when you do something wrong. How do you, and then you're just explaining. So how do you know when it's wrong? Well, you know, if I tell a lie. Right. I agree that that's wrong. I know why it's wrong. How do you know it's wrong? And this is what you want to get to. You feel guilty because you are guilty. You want to move the feelings to something more objective. The feelings of guilt are actually because we are objectively guilty before God. And so it's not just I have my own moral code. And when I violate my own moral code, I feel bad about that. I mean, that's what many people will say. And again, in your evangelism, you want to explore that with them. So what if everybody doesn't have your moral code? I mean, you've got your personal moral code, but the guy next door to you doesn't have your personal moral code. So is it okay for him then to do those things that, that are wrong, that we might both agree are wrong? Lying, adultery, killing someone? And in all of those, you're trying to show the person that they are living off the stolen capital of the biblical, the biblical worldview. Now, my point to you in this series has simply been to try to look at where someone is and try to find out their characteristic ways of expressing their own sin. And their ultimate sin is this, that they've rejected the true and living God and they've concocted their own version of life. And they've stolen parts of what he has given and they are using them for their own ends. And that's what you want to be used of God as, a tool to show them. To show them that they can't live apart from the biblical worldview. But that requires getting to know the person. That requires getting uh, an opportunity to chat with them. If you have one chat with them, just ask God to use that seed to be watered by somebody else down the road. If you get to have multiple chats with them like I did with Gary I left that company not knowing if that had any effect on him at all and then God used that later for him to come to come to Christ and now serving serving the Lord so you never know how that's going to come out but your job is to simply be faithful in terms of being a tool analyzing where people are and then uh, and then and then giving the gospel uh, to those people by showing them their need for the gospel and one way to do that is to show them the impossibility of the contrary. All right? Let's ask God to help us to have open doors for that this coming week, to grant us safety and bring us back next Lord's Day. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to worship as your people, to sing praise to you, to learn of you, to give back to you, to pray to you. And Father, we thank you for this hour as well, to think about the people that you bring in our circle and how we should treat them as persons, as persons of value, and not simply scalps to hang on the wall, as it were, of our evangelistic efforts. Help us to see them as your image bearers. Help us to love them as Christ loves. Help us to take the time, as you allow in our circumstances, to get to know them and having gotten to know them, to see the characteristic ways that they defy you, Uh, perhaps even in in ignorance, but, but a willful ignorance, because they have rejected the light that you have given. Help us to have the skill to lovingly show that to them, that apart from the light that you supply, we live in darkness. And it is only, as the psalmist said, in thy light that we see light. And so, Lord, help us to be skillful evangelists, to be loving evangelists. And may you bring people our way that, whose hearts are open to the gospel. We expect that what will happen to us, Lord, is what happened to the great apostle. That there will be those who hear and want to know more, those who reject and scoff, and then by your grace, those who are, who are brought out of the world into yourself, and that you allow us to be involved in that. Help us to see it as the grand privilege that it is. Go with us this week. As we serve as your ambassadors, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.